If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, You are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? It's never us, Holy One. It's always them, even when we know it's us. Like in the story of the parting of the Red Sea, we are always the Israelites, never the Egyptians. We are the weary, the harassed, and the worn. We are never the ones with the hardened hearts. But if Pharaoh's army didn't think that they were the villains, perhaps we are not always who we think we are. We too are guilty of making life harder for our neighbors. We too try to keep bound what doesn't belong to us. We too get so obsessed with overtaking that we can't see the walls closing in. Forgive us, Holy One, for not realizing that our fists are clenched. Slow us down enough to change direction before it's too late. Help us to turn around, don't drown. With softening hearts we pray, amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 through 22. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. Here ends the hardest teaching in our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Occasionally, I get requests from folks to preach on particular topics or verses in the Bible. People also occasionally request I preach a certain sermon again. 
And those requests for specific topics or Bible passages or sermons are encouraging to me as a pastor for they reflect theological curiosity and spiritual work on the part of the person making the request. I almost never write a sermon based on those requests or repeat a sermon for the following Sunday. Uh, This was not always the case. Uh, I used to have really terrible boundaries. Um, I used to think that I had to respond with the requested sermon immediately, whether or not it made sense in the flow of congregational life. Now, however, I trust that the timing will work itself out. Sometimes it's that we need a block of Sundays to cover it. Other times it's that the lectionary will bring it to us naturally. And that's what happened with this particular sermon after requests for something on forgiveness and for this particular sermon. And the bonus is that I have, I have wanted to give this particular sermon an, another go, uh, all of which is to say, please keep those requests coming, and we will get to each of them eventually. Most people don't know that in 1992, Dolly Parton almost had a heart attack. She was driving listening to the radio, and over the airwaves, she heard Whitney Houston belting out, I will always love you. Dolly was so moved that she had to pull the car over out of fear of getting in a wreck, for she said, I didn't know that little song of mine could be done so beautifully, so big, so overwhelming, that I really almost had a heart attack right there. Most people don't know that Dolly Parton wrote and recorded I Will Always Love You. Most think it's a Whitney Houston original, first recorded in 1992 for the film The Bodyguard, and it remains one of the best-selling singles of all time. But it was indeed Dolly who wrote and recorded it in 1972. It wasn't the first time that this particular song had almost given Dolly a heart attack. After the song was released in 1974, Elvis wanted to record I Will Always Love You. His manager approached Dolly with an offer, but it included the stipulation that Elvis would get half of her publishing rights. It was a tough decision, but she turned him down. As she recalls, I said, I'm really sorry, and I cried all night. I mean, it was the worst thing, you know. It's Elvis. And other people were saying, you're nuts. It's Elvis. But something in my heart said, don't do that. And I just didn't do it. But I always wondered what it would sound like. I know he'd kill it, don't you? He would have just killed it. But anyway, I wouldn't and so he didn't. Then, when Whitney's version came out, I made enough money to buy Graceland. (laughs) Other than learning that Dolly Parton wrote and recorded the song first, the other thing that often surprises people about I Will Always Love You is that it isn't about the end of a romantic relationship. 
the greatest love song ever written in country music, was born out of the end of Dolly's professional relationship with her longtime music partner, Porter Wagner. Porter Wagner led the, the most successful country music television show of its time, The Porter Wagner Show. And in 1967, he needed a new girl singer, as they called them in the day. He turned to a 21-year-old songwriter named Dolly Parton, who just recorded her first hit, Dumb Blonde. So began a nearly decade-long partnership that, behind the scenes, was as contentious as it was commercially successful. Early in her time on the show, Dolly and Porter began recording duets, including 14 top 10 hits and one number one. Porter was their de facto producer-arranger on 13 duet albums, and he also managed and produced Dolly's RCA solo output during this same period. In the world of country music, they were the royal couple. And at every awards show, at every award that they would be named to win, they would walk up to the stage together, his arm draped around her. He accepts the award. Dolly doesn't speak. As she says, I had to be quiet around Porter because Porter was the star. I wasn't allowed to say a lot, or I didn't think it was my place to try. You didn't do that as a woman, and you didn't do that as a professional person, and it was his show, not mine, until I went on my own, until I claimed and owned myself. Claiming herself would happen both slowly and all of the sudden over the seven years Dolly and Porter worked together. In the early 1970s, Dolly wrote at a blistering pace. From 69 through the mid-70s, her hits included Joshua, Coat of Many Colors, My Blue Tears, and Jolene. One of Porter's best songwriters, Mel Tillis, was quoted as saying he couldn't keep up with Dolly. He would submit one song and she would submit three. As she began to claim herself, Dolly tried, at first, to stay, hoping to do both the Porter Wagner show and some of her own work. But Porter wasn't interested in letting Dolly change anything. For as one of Porter's closest friends, singer-songwriter Marty Stewart described it, the thing about Porter is the same with so many other country singers. They had a pretty little girl singer on their shoulder around Nashville, and they were lord and master, and whatever they said went. Dolly and Porter's relationship deteriorated. During this time that Dolly arguably discovered her power, both as a performer and as a songwriter, um, it was made difficult, um, in part because of the wider, the wider culture shift in America. She decided to strike out on her own. And this happened to be a particular moment in America when the divorce rate was doubling, when no-fault divorce laws were popping up all over the country. This was a moment when women could finally leave. 
Dolly and Porter's relationship was fine as long as she played her assigned role, as long as he didn't feel threatened by her gifts. But Dolly couldn't do that, and Porter couldn't not feel threatened, so she needed to leave. As Dolly described it, he had had this show for years. He didn't need me to have his hit show. He wasn't expecting me to be all that I was. When he hired me as a singer, he was just hiring what he thought was a right pretty little girl. But I was a serious writer, and he didn't know that. I was a serious entertainer, and he didn't know that. He didn't know how many dreams I had. It was just one of those relationships where you hated him one day and you loved him the next, and it just got so intermingled and so wadded up. It was like a marriage of sorts. He would say, this is my show. I made you. And I'd say, I know, but this is my life. And yeah, you've made me. You've made me mad. (laughs) At some point, Dolly thought, I'm going to break myself if I don't go. Because all we were doing was fighting, and it just wasn't working. I couldn't think. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. He wasn't happy either. That's when she went home and wrote, I will always love you. The story goes that the next day she walked right into Porter Wagner's office, told him to sit down and sang it for him. When she finished, he told her, that's the best song you ever wrote. I guess you can go if I can produce the record. So he produced the record, and she left. But that wasn't the end of it. Marty Stewart said that Porter Wagner capsized after that, after all those years of being the king. His ego was bruised and his heart was broke. The fallout was described as a hillbilly divorce, and it was awful. Porter Wagner went on a public spree of character defamation against Dolly in interviews saying that he would never trust Dolly with anything, that she stole from him, and that she lived in a fairyland, claiming that Dolly would turn her back on her own family to help herself. Porter ended up suing Dolly, claiming that he was entitled to manage her for five more years and that during that time she couldn't enter into any contract concerning her musical career without his written approval, and that he was entitled to a percentage of her earnings, Dolly decided to settle for a million dollars. It would take her years and years to pay him that money. But as Jad Abumrad observed, what is so amazing about this story is how it ends. The good thing about a divorce is that unhappy people can walk away from an unhappy thing. But so often that's not what happens. People get stuck in the ugly part. But not here. Dolly paid Porter Wagner the million dollars over time. Then in 1981, Porter gets dropped from his label And Dolly hears that he's made some bad investments and that the IRS has come after him, saying that he owed them half a million dollars. As Dolly recounts, he fell on hard times and he needed the money. At the time, I had the money. 
and I thought a good way for me to thank him for the good he had done in my life, regardless of everything else, was to buy the publishing company and then just give it back to him. So that's what she did. Porter Wagner died in 2007 in a hospice facility in Nashville. And in his last days, it was Dolly who sat with him and held his hand. For most people, her forgiveness is unimaginable after all the hurt and pain. But as Dolly said about all of this, forgiveness, forgiveness is all there is. Which sounds a lot like how Jesus answered when Peter asked how many times we should forgive. Not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. This is not ranked as one of Jesus' most popular sayings. And we know why. Forgiveness is hard. People find it much easier to be angry and vengeful. In an essay in the New York Times, author Mary Gordon wrote that anger is exciting and enlivening. And forgiveness is quiet and, like small agriculture or the domestic arts, labor-intensive and yielding modest fruit. Forgiveness isn't our first instinct for this very reason. It is challenging and relentless work. Seventy-seven times? That seems endless. Theologian Douglas Hare explains that 77 times is probably an allusion to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, where Lamech proudly boasts to his wives that he will avenge himself 77-fold on anyone who dares to attack him. Forgiveness is thus presented as the antonym of revenge. Followers of Jesus must renounce the very human intention of getting even with someone because we are called to be Lamech's polar opposite. Forgiveness is the antithesis of vengefulness. Forgiveness, though, is not always what we think it is. Forgiveness is not trust. It is possible to forgive someone and to no longer harbor resentment towards them, but to set important boundaries around them. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. Forgiveness is also not to be confused with sentimental toleration of hurtful behavior. It does not mean that you are to stay in an abusive relationship. As anti-apartheid leader Archbishop Desmond Tutu wrote, forgiveness is not weakness, it is not subversion of justice, it is not forgetting, it is not easy. Rather, forgiveness is freedom, it is wholeness and healing, it is releasing what we cannot survive by holding on. Until we forgive the person who has harmed us, that person holds the key to our happiness. That person will be our jailer. 
When we forgive, we take back control of our own fate and our own feelings. We become our own liberators. We don't forgive to help the other person. We don't forgive for others. We forgive for ourselves. This is true both spiritually and scientifically. Archbishop Tutu goes on to say, whether it is the tormentor who tortured me brutally, the spouse who betrayed me, the boss who passed me over for a promotion, or the driver who cut me off during my morning commute, I face the exact same choice to forgive or to seek revenge. We face this choice of whether or not to forgive as individuals, as families, as communities, and as a deeply connected world. The quality of human life on our planet is nothing more than the sum total of our daily interactions with one another. Each time we help and each time we harm, we have a dramatic impact on our world. Because we are human, some of our interactions go wrong and then we will hurt or be hurt or both. It is the nature of being human and it is unavoidable. But forgiveness is the way we set those interactions right. It is the way we mend tears in the social fabric. It is the way we stop our human community from unraveling. If there is anything we know to be true, it is that violence begets violence. Harm begets harm. Hurt people hurt people. And this is why forgiveness is all there is. Why we must work on it constantly. How we must be able to say, I will always love you. Not just seven times, but 77 times. Jesus is asking us to choose a different path than revenge, which is to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It is, I think, very important to note that while Dolly said, forgiveness is all there is, it even took Dolly a while to get there. In the song, it took her three entire verses to get there. The first verse speaks of pain. The second verse acknowledges the grief. And then the third verse, the verse Dolly calls the Porter verse, that's the verse where she is able to offer hope for the well-being of Porter, that life will treat him kind, that he'll have what he dreams of, that he wishes, she wishes for him joy and happiness and above all, love. So it is with us. It may take us three verses to get there too, but as the saying goes, we make the road by walking, God grant us the courage 
to take that first step. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.